You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Before you listen to this episode, if you haven't already, go listen to part one of this three-part series. I highly recommend doing so, so you can have all the context and the full experience. As with the last episode, this episode has mention of uncomfortable topics such as sexual assault, rape, racism, and violence. Some parts may be graphic and difficult to take in. I would do my best to convey the details of this case with as much care as possible. I advise that you all take care while listening. Please consider this a trigger warning. As the old saying goes, there's his story, her story, and then there's the truth. Our justice system is supposed to decide which version of events is closer to the truth beyond a reasonable doubt. But truth and reality can often be distorted. Now, where were we? What was supposed to be a fun night in the park for everyone turned into a tragedy. Yusuf, Kevin, Raymond, and Antron were headed to Spafford Juvenile Detention Center. And Corey was on his way to Rikers Island. The boys were coerced into giving confessions regarding the attacks of jogger Patricia Miley. Each confection contradicted the others and were obtained after nearly 14 to 30 hours of interrogation. And other than these confessions, the police had little to go off of. Trisha, after all, was in the hospital and remembered little to nothing. His story, her story, the truth. The her story version of these events is that Linda Fairstein was the head of the district attorney sex crimes division in New York. She and her team were in charge of creating a case to put these young men who confessed already in prison. This truth was not that of Patricia Miley. You see, Patricia would sadly never really know the truth. The only thing true was that she was sure that she was attacked, but the details of that attack would remain unknown to her. When Trisha finally opened her eyes and regained consciousness after weeks in a coma, she found herself in the hospital. She had no memory of anything that had happened to her up to this point. She was still in an incredibly fragile position. Imagine how confusing that must have been. You're in the hospital and you're in pain all over and unable to walk or move. And what feels like yesterday, you were in your office about to go on your routine jog. And worst, you still don't know how you got there. Friends and family were advised to keep the details of the case hidden from her for a while. Elizabeth Letterer, assistant district attorney, did not want to confuse her recollection of any events. Everyone was anxious to see if she would remember anything. But eventually, someone would have to tell her that she was raped and left for dead. Doctors maintained that, although she was conscious, it was unlikely that she would have the same level of brain function or mobility. She would likely need to be cared for the remainder of her life. But once again, against all odds, she would slowly regain her strength. 
she gradually progressed, moving little by little from a wheelchair to walking on her own, although be it still unsteady. She even learned how to run again and would visit the park to see the memorial that people had created in her name. So many people reached out to express their sympathies. Frank Sinatra even sent her flowers. Her story was national news and many people's worst nightmare. Even today, the majority of women in our society who go running or walking have experienced some sort of harassment or paranoia. And there's no way of knowing if these situations that they're in could turn for the worse. But underneath the surface of some of the support that Trisha was getting was something a little more sinister. For some people, the attack of a white woman, the further brutalization of this white woman in a park by a group of black boys was confirmation of prejudice going back decades. And because of these prejudices, the media tore these children apart. There was no grace or room for innocence until proven guilty. If you remember the rape case involving the Duke lacrosse students in 2006, the comparisons between that case and the case of the Central Park Five are night and day. And much like that, this was the main news stories all over the nation, regardless of all the crime that was going on in the area during this time. I mean, the East Side Slasher, if you've ever heard of him, who was known for raping and beating women, was still on the loose in New York at the time. But as far as the public and the police were concerned, the Central Park Five were guilty and deserved all the shame and attention for it. Yusuf, Antron, and Kevin had managed to get out on bail. Yusuf was out first, followed by Kevin, after a priest who read his story in the paper wanted to help. Antron's family had most of the money they would need and would later get the rest after the collection efforts of Al Sharpton. The remaining funds were supposed to go to Corey, but his mother turned down the assistance. The funds went to Steve Lopez instead. Raymond's attorney did not even request bail originally, and by the time he had, Raymond's father had spent all of their money on the attorney. In jail, Raymond feared for his life. Rapists and child molesters are enemies to other inmates due to the nature of their crime. But Raymond insisted he didn't do it. Some people believed him while others didn't, so this gave him a little protection. Corey's situation was even more dire. He was going to the notorious Rikers Island as a 16-year-old. He was frequently abused there and even spent some time in solitary confinement. For those listeners who may not be aware, jail and prison are not the same thing. Jail is where you go to await trial when you have a short-term sentence. If you can't bail out or if you don't qualify for bail because you are considered a danger or flight risk, you wait in jail. But for those who can't bail out of jail, you wait there, imprisoned, even though you may not ever be found guilty. For those with money, posting bail is no problem. But being out on bail does not mean the end of someone's troubles. You see, these five young men now had a massive target on their back, both in jail and out of jail. They were hated and talked about as if they were animals. The boys who had made bail and their family were frequently harassed by the media. They kept their heads down and comments to themselves. They couldn't go anywhere without being recognized. And when they turned on the TV, the hatred entered their homes. Yusuf's mother would put him in disguises so he could leave the home. Antron stopped attending school altogether, but still he kept up with his studies. Kevin dropped out of school for the time being as well and had to have family with him when he went places. 
People stared and whispered. They called him a rapist. They called them all rapists. Wolfpack, brutes, monsters, animals. These words were used heavily to describe them leading up to the trial. They were wild, and they were the poster children for everything wrong with black American youth. All before they even had their day in court. Wildling was a term that was thrown around by the media often. It was believed to be a term that kids used to describe kids who just wanted to go out and terrorize other people. It was believed to be a term used to describe kids who just wanted to go out and terrorize other people. It was almost talked about as if kids woke up in the morning and were asking each other if they wanted to go wildling. It seems like one of the things that someone overheard, but they weren't familiar with the vernacular, and so they misinterpreted the context. Wildin is a common phrase used in AAVE. It doesn't have a positive connotation, but it doesn't literally mean going wild. It basically describes someone who is acting out or doing something crazy. It doesn't always necessarily mean something harmful or criminal either. But the use of the terminology in the news created more fear and panic. People were concerned that they would become the next victim of the wilding. It also further compared the boys to animals, which, as we know, dehumanized them. And when you don't see someone as human, it's easy to believe they are capable of anything without looking at the facts. It also means that you're less likely to care what happens to them. A Daily News article printed a story with the headline reading, Wildling teens held in rape are called part of the wolf pack. The first paragraph says seven teenagers were charged yesterday with brutally raping and nearly killing a jogger during a crime spree in which nearly three dozen youths roamed Central Park, wildly randomly attacking anyone they found. This was long before a court date, and it was only the beginning of articles like this. For reference, Dr. Natalie Byfield, professor and expert in communications and sociology, compiled samples of the articles printed surrounding the case at the time. Only 12 out of 251 articles use the word alleged when referring to the boys. 12 out of 251. One of the most notable incidents of condemnation came from a surprising source. Not an activist or politician, but a businessman. Donald J. Trump. Trump took out a full-page ad in four newspapers calling for the boys to be killed. These ads would have cost Donald Trump $85,000 at the time, which is about $200,000 today. The large title read, Bring Back the Death Penalty, Bring Back Our Police. The ad addresses the mayor at the time who called for people to remove hate from their hearts. And to that, Donald Trump said, quote, I want to hate these muggers and murderers. They should be forced to suffer. And when they kill, they should be executed for their crimes. They must serve as an example so that others will think long and hard before committing a crime or an act of violence. Yes, I want to hate these murderers, and I always will. At the bottom was his signature. But it didn't stop there. Former White House Communications Director Patrick Buchanan had something to say about the boys as well. Quote, If the elders of that woke pack were tried, convicted, and hanged in Central Park by June 1st, and the 13- and 14-year-olds were stripped, horse-whipped, and sent to prison, the park might soon be safe again for women. Unquote. There was absolutely no way these boys were going to get a fair trial. In the minds of the public, they had already been tried, and if this had been just a few decades prior, they would have already been dead. The judge assigned to the case was selected with intent. 
Judge Thomas Galligan would preside over the case. He was known for putting people away, and it's not surprising that he was selected rather than a judge selected at random, which was the standard practice. And to make matters worse, during this trial, the video confessions would be played for the jury to hear. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Yusuf, Raymond, and Antron would be tried together. Yusuf never gave a statement. The taped confessions they did were heavily censored in order to maintain the rights of the others mentioned on the tapes and therefore were not as useful. Antron and Raymond's confessions were the most salvageable. This was one of the many decisions that ended up working in the prosecution's favor. Yusuf's case was weaker, so the hope was that Antron's and Raymond's statements would help convict everyone. This, of course, was against the wishes of the defense. After all, prior to this situation, Antron, Yusuf, and Raymond didn't even really know each other and all had different experiences with law enforcement. But even with the odds stacked against them, the boys, the families, and the lawyer were not going to give up. Each lawyer had different strategies for each of their clients. Some were better than others. Robert Burns, who was a friend of the family, would represent Yusuf. Most of his experience was with divorce cases. His strategy was to show that Yusuf did not give a statement and that any conversation he had with the police was irrelevant because he was a minor. He also believed that there is no sufficient evidence that a rape even occurred at all. A defense that had a few holes in it, as you could probably imagine. It is true that her vaginal injuries were minimal, but that doesn't always mean a rape never happened. During the trial, Yusuf also recalled seeing him, his lawyer, doze off at one point. Michael Joseph represented Antron. He had the most relevant legal experience out of the three lawyers, and his strategy also focused on the fact that Antron was coerced and only told the police what they thought they wanted to hear, with the promise of going home. He wanted to introduce evidence showing how susceptible Antron was to this type of manipulation. The judge would, of course, deny that. But more importantly, he wanted to emphasize the lack of any evidence outside of the confession tying Antron to the crime. Peter Rivera defended Raymond. He aimed to show that Raymond was coerced and that his rights were violated. He maintained that Raymond should not even have been arrested in the first place. But would this be enough to create reasonable doubt that the boys didn't commit the crime? June 25th, 1990. The trial begins. The crowds gathered outside of the courthouse. 
On one side of the aisle, you had people who stood by the jogger. One group in particular, the Guardian Angels, wore their iconic red and showed up to support. This is a nonprofit organization whose focus is to look after and empower the community. The attack on Trisha is exactly the kind of violence they sought to prevent. They held up signs with phrases such as, justice served, safety ensured. They chanted, hey, hey, ho, ho, all rapists got to go. And don't misunderstand, Trisha Miley definitely deserved that justice. What happened to her was terrible. But were we trying the wrong perpetrators? On the other side, there was a community that stood behind these boys because they distrusted the police and believed in their innocence. To them, if the victim were black or if the boys were white, these things would have gone a completely different direction. They also suspected that Trisha's boyfriend was involved in her attack. The details weren't adding up. Al Sharpton showed up leading the chant, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. And of course, you had the press who were ever present to soak up every single moment. But right in the middle were Antron, Raymond, and Yusuf. Antron felt like the whole world hated them. Imagine the weight of that on a child, feeling like the entire world hated you. He held his mother's hand on the way inside. And this feeling was only amplified by the fact that during this terrifying time, when Antron and his mother needed him the most, they were abandoned by his father. The man who Antron saw as his hero left them when they needed him the most. All of them wore suits and shuffled into the building, keeping their eyes fixed on the entrance. Yusuf's mother wore a shirt with the words, Yusuf is innocent, displayed proudly on the front. For six weeks, the case went on like this, day after day. Inside the courtroom was a full house. The boys all sat together and their family sat as close as possible with only the bar separating them from their children. The jury was very diverse racially and socially, made up of four white jurors, four black jurors, three Latinos, and one Asian juror from varying professions. But the jury only had two women. The prosecution was prepared to sway each and every one of them. Linda Fairstein and her team had a strategy despite the lack of physical evidence. She had supported her two assistant district attorneys, Elizabeth Letterer and Arthur Clement's efforts to make sure the boys who confessed were locked away. Letterer spoke very matter-of-fact about the details of that night. She mentioned Kevin pretty often even though he wasn't even on trial that day. She talked about the hair found on the underwear that could have belonged to Trisha. But what she didn't mention is that the hair was not a definite match. It was just a possibility it could have been hers and it was found on Kevin's underwear. But why bring up Kevin at all? Well, if she could show that Kevin was a rapist in conjunction with the video statements, then Yusuf, Antron, and Raymond could be more easily tied to the crime. She glossed right over the fact that the DNA found at the scene didn't match because for her, the confessions were enough. She argued that they may have participated in the rape without having to ejaculate, in which, if you remember, is inconsistent with Corey's recollection of the events. There was no blood on the boys. Her explanation, Trisha bled out after they left, and there was no mud on them because they raped her in an area that wasn't muddy and her body was found in a different location. And the most important point, above all else, her biggest question was, if the confessions were coerced, why didn't the parents intervene? They were all present during the confessions. 
Well, but the part she wasn't listening to, and it seems no one was listening to, is that the parents were scared too. They just wanted their sons to go home. They thought that they could trust the police. They also thought that as long as their sons didn't say they raped anyone, they wouldn't be in any trouble. In some cases, they even thought their sons would just be a witness. But Letterer's arguments were restated and heavily reinforced throughout the trial. The problem with the defense is that there were times that each of them were sort of doing their own thing. There wasn't always a unified front between the lawyers. But this was hard because they were all defending their clients separately while they were all being tried together. The police officers available around the time of the attack were interviewed. The bikers and any victims who were assaulted that night also testified. The doctor described Patricia Miley's injuries in great detail. Color photos of her injuries were shown to the jury. Her broken body was on full display, as if to say, look at what these brutes did to her. Even the officer who made the call to hold the boys at the precinct was questioned. Cross-examination of the witnesses often backfired. The police officers all looked out for each other at one point or another, and even though their stories had inconsistent details, they maintained that no one was coerced. Officer Reynolds, one of the arresting officers at the park that night, initially noted that Raymond resisted arrest by running away. He also claimed that he refused his one phone call when it was offered, which was not true. And Officer Reynolds even admitted that it wasn't. Antron's lawyer believed that the police were lying on the stand and hoped to demonstrate that to the jury. Raymond's father and grandmother also testified. Outside of testifying, Raymond's father waited outside of the courtroom. It was too much for him to bear, and he had not been present for the trial at all. He didn't have as much faith that his son would be found innocent, and that broke his heart. While on the stand, he talked about their experience with the police and how confusing it was. Raymond's grandmother also spoke and explained how she didn't really understand everything that was going on due to her language barrier. The detectives who interviewed Antron testified five days apart. This made it hard for the jury to compare things, and there were little inconsistencies in between their testimonies as well. At one point, Antron's parents took the stand. Both of his parents said that Antron was coerced. His father even retold the story of throwing the chair out of frustration. He explained to the courtroom that even though his son lied about his involvement, he always believed his son was telling the truth the first time. Antron did not take the stand. He was tired of answering questions and telling lies. The only thing working in their favor was that there was no DNA evidence. After interviewing the person who performed the DNA test, it became even more clear that the DNA evidence was insufficient. But there was a curveball during the trial that no one expected. July 16th, 1990. Patricia Miley took the stand. Her arrival was treated with discretion. She was escorted by police in a van with tinted windows. They took an alternative entrance in order to avoid the media frenzy happening out front. Up until this moment, she had total anonymity. No one had a face to put with the victim, and even now, as she made her way into the court, no cameras were allowed. Even the sketch artist was forbidden for portraying her likeness. Her family really didn't want her to testify. It seemed like a lot of unnecessary stress. Patricia felt it was vital for her to participate in her own trial. It was her choice. She wanted to speak for herself in whatever way she could. And she made the decision to gather up all of her strength and slowly make her way to the witness stand. The courtroom was dead silent. She was incredibly nervous, but didn't show it. 
She had the scars of a woman who had been through hell. During her time on the stand, she talked about what she remembered leading up to the attack and her usual hobbies. The jury had an opportunity to get to know her, and the prosecution had the opportunity to give humanity to the victim. She was just a nameless, faceless person in the paper up until now. Her testimony was a huge tug at the jury's heartstrings. Some jurors felt her testimony distracted some of their fellow jurors from looking at all the facts. Now, keep in mind, from her perspective, based on the videos, police, and the media frenzy, the young men who attacked her were in the courtroom, just a few feet away. Antron prayed to God that she would remember something, anything that would make her say, wait a minute, these boys didn't do it. But that never happened. The defense attorneys chose not to cross-examine her, which was a wise decision. The last thing they wanted to do was seem aggressive to the victim of this crime. She was only on stand for about 15 minutes. At one point during all of this, the boys were given a choice, plead guilty or carry on with the trial to prove their innocence, a trial which clearly was not going in their favor. All three had to agree to the deal. Yusuf explained that if he was guilty, he would take the plea to do the least amount of time possible. But since he was innocent, he refused to say he did something he didn't do. And that was that. Raymond and Antrod agreed, so there was no deal. As the trial dragged on, things were only getting worse for the boys. But Raymond remembers overhearing his lawyer whisper to himself that these boys didn't do it. He actually believed his client. Raymond, however, hoped that maybe this would make him fight even harder for him now. But when the video statements were played in that courtroom, it was all over. They were so hard to watch and left everyone feeling unsettled. They were the final nail in the coffin. The confessions were compelling, and with them, it was as if all of the previous evidence melted away. Trisha recalls seeing some of the confessions and how uncomfortable it was to hear people describe doing those things to her. But remember, Yusuf didn't give a video confession. Yusuf's family testified that once they arrived, they told police that Yusuf was not of age and they were ignored. His mother recalled speaking with Linda Fairstein directly and her delayed actions in retrieving her son. Yusuf himself would even take the stand. This wasn't popular amongst the defense team. The other two lawyers did not have their clients take the stand, and it was unclear how Yusuf would respond to the pressure. He took the stand and brought a copy of the Quran with him. He was confident and maintained his innocence, but there was tension between him and Letterer. She clearly wasn't a fan of Yusuf, and he, although not disrespectful, felt the same. Things took a turn when Letterer called Linda Fairstein to the stand. Yusuf's mother was burning with rage at the lies she was telling about her son, one of which being that they were not informed that Yusuf was 16 until further into his questioning. Yusuf's mother exploded and leapt up, calling Fairstein a liar. She screamed that her son didn't do this. She let everyone know that even he took a polygraph test. That's right, a lie detector test. He was asked if he saw or engaged in the rape, to which he said no and the lie detector test determined he was telling the truth. But this was not allowed into evidence. You have to wonder why all of the boys didn't take one. Why was this not a part of the defense's strategy? The judge called for order in the court and had Yusuf's mother removed for the rest of the trial. The jury was ordered to disregard her outburst and ignored what she just mentioned. 
During Lederer's closing arguments, someone knocked to signal the people in the crowd who supported the boys and in opposition of what she was saying, stood up and walked out in protest, including Antron's parents and some of Yusuf's family members. But because of this, they were not allowed back in the courtroom. The closing arguments of the defense did little to clear their clients' names or make much of a difference. After a six-week trial, the jury deliberated for 10 days. Some jurors felt that the inconsistencies in the statements and the lack of physical evidence were cause for concern, but the majority of them felt that the confessions were enough. They had to have at least some involvement because, once again, why would someone confess to something that they did not do? And the image of Trisha was burned in their minds. On August 18th, 7.15 p.m., it was announced that they were all found guilty of rape, assault, robbery, and rioting. Antron's parents cried out in pain. He himself remembers being completely in shock. All of the boys were in shock. For a moment, they disassociated like they weren't even in their bodies. They couldn't believe this was actually happening. A night in the park brought them here. Antron turned to his lawyer and thanked him for trying his best. Raymond's father heard the news over the radio. He cried for his son. Reporters stormed the courtroom to get a glimpse of the aftermath. The three boys were handcuffed and taken to the back immediately. The group held in their tears until they were all in the back together. It was important that they maintain their dignity. When it was safe, they shared private moments and wept. Sentencing took place on September 11, 1990. Antron, Yusuf, and Raymond maintained that they were innocent. Yusuf read a poem to express how he felt and shared it with the judge. He also explained that he was a man of faith and that he would not lie and disrespect his beliefs by doing so. But the judge couldn't have cared less. He sentenced each of them to five to ten years for the rape and robbery. They would stay in the juvenile facility until they were 21, and at that time they would age out and be sent to an adult prison. Corey and Kevin began their trial October 22, 1990, almost 33 years to the date. I don't want to get your hopes up. Their trial didn't go much better. Howard Diller represented Kevin, and truth be told, Kevin and his family were not all that impressed with his legal representation. Howard was even responsible for releasing Kevin's confession to the press, which only added to the persecution in the media. His strategies were not always the most agreeable. He argued that Kevin never admitted to having raped the woman, but he was unable to establish that he wasn't completely innocent. The most damning piece of evidence against Kevin would be the hair found in his underwear along with grass and semen stains. But as we covered in the last episode, the semen on Trisha's pants were from her boyfriend, left over from when they had sex the week prior. Who was to say the same couldn't be true for Kevin? And as for the grass and mud, he was tackled to the ground. Sagging was in fashion at the time, so it is not beyond a reasonable doubt. Colin Moore represented Corey, and he had many items he wanted to bring to the jury's attention. He thought the whole ordeal was a conspiracy to throw these black boys in prison. He pointed out the inconsistencies in Corey's statement. He spoke about Corey's mental capacity at the time. Corey could neither read nor write very well. He often required additional assistance in school as a result. Moore argued that there was no way a statement like this was written by Corey. Given this information, although he was 16, he absolutely would have needed someone present during his interrogation. He also stated that no rape had occurred because there was no trauma to the genital areas, not to mention the lack of DNA evidence. 
Comparing the two lawyers made Diller's strategy look all the more unimpressive in the eyes of Kevin and his family. To them, it seemed he was more concerned with the notoriety of the case than justice for Kevin. At some points during the trial, it seemed like Moore was working for both of the boys' freedom. Because of this, at least at first, Kevin's family refused to take the stand and testify. Letterer began her opening statement in a similar way to the first trial, detailing everything that happened. She was careful to weave in and out of select details to make the opening statement as strong as possible. Corey, who had experienced significant trauma in jail, grew increasingly agitated the more Letterer spoke. Listening to her describe him as a rapist and a criminal set him off. In the Central Park Five book by Sarah Burns, she explained that he started to fidget and shake his head. He whispered to himself, lies, lies, lies. And as soon as the jury filed out for recess, his emotions bubbled up inside of him and exploded until he sprang up and cried out, pounding his head with his fist. No, 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 can't take this. Oh, Lord Jesus, no, it's not right. It's wrong. No, the woman is lying. Oh, Lord Jesus, she's lying. He was inconsolable and had to be removed from the courtroom for a moment to gather himself. During this time, Kevin's lawyer requested a mistrial due to the outbursts, and of course, that was denied. The trial had a different energy to it than the last one. For starters, there were more women members of the jury. Seven women, five men. Five white, four black, two Hispanic, and one Asian. After the previous verdict, the crowd was a little more rowdy. A few were asked to leave, and the judge had to call for order quite a few times. November 2nd, 1990, Patricia Miley would testify again, but this time she was cross-examined. The defense downplayed her injuries. They stated that since she was already back at work and even jogging in the park again, how badly could she have been hurt? This was true. Trisha had gone back to work and revisited Central Park since her attack. But the medical examiners already detailed the extent of her injuries and how miraculous her recovery was. During this interrogation, constant objections were thrown and they were sustained. He didn't get to discuss the men in her life, which made it difficult for him to implicate the boyfriend. But that didn't stop him from asking her when was the last time she had sex? To him, if they had sex that day, it could explain what was found in the rape kit rather than it being the result of an actual rape. Trisha remembers feeling like he was implying that she was a slut. He wasn't the only one feeling that way. Some people keeping up with the case also thought the boyfriend did it. They called Trisha a whore, which was pretty unfair. Kevin's father and mother changed their minds and both testified. The change of heart was fueled by the need to help Kevin in whatever way they could. And much like with the previous parents, what they said contradicted what detectives said. At the time of Kevin's interrogations, his mother was recovering from a stroke and became fatigued after being at the station for so long. And his sister, who took her place, was young and not well-versed on the law. Kevin's sister, Angela, was adamant about the fact that she didn't want to testify. She later agreed because she thought it might help her brother. Letterer was very aggressive with her on the stand. She insisted that Angela signed off on the statement, though Angela disagreed. Letterer even went so far as to have a handwriting expert prove that the signature matched Angela's. Kevin's family wouldn't be the only unexpected people on the stand. Elizabeth Letterer had one more trick up her sleeve. A witness who frequently visited family who lived in the same building as Corey. She knew him pretty well, and she told the court that Corey had told her that he was there during the rape, 
and touched the woman's leg during the attack. This conflicted a little, but with the statement given by the neighbors who said that they saw or interacted with Corey around the time of the attack would have been taking place. But still, this statement was almost like a fifth confession. Corey's mother also took the stand before being ejected after she got into it with Letterer and became non-compliant with her requests or answering any questions. The judge struck her testimony from the record, which also put Corey home around 9.30 p.m. And Corey, who was barely keeping it together, took the stand too. It wasn't clear if this was going to help or hurt his case. Corey described what happened from his perspective. He said he went to the park but left soon after and then he was not involved in any of the violence that took place. He said he went home once things started to get out of control. He talked about how things went the next day and how he ended up being interrogated and what that interrogation was like. As we mentioned previously, Corey's reading and writing abilities were not on grade level. This was in combination due to his disability and the fact that he frequently missed school. School was difficult for Corey. He was bullied and threatened frequently, so much so that he didn't want to go. He even told the courtroom that a gun was put to his head once at school. Letterer asked Corey if he could read something out loud for the jury. I imagine if I was Corey, such a request could make me feel disrespected. She already knew he couldn't. How degrading. He couldn't and he restated that he couldn't read it. Letterer's questioning only upset Corey further. He didn't understand why she was asking him about his school record or performance. He was fed up and began to lash out at her. The judge had to ask him to calm down. She played his confession tape while he was on the stand. Looking back, Corey remembers being in total disbelief. It was unreal seeing him say those things about himself, things that he knew weren't true. Corey maintained the police made him say those things and he just wanted to go home. But Letterer condescended to him that they didn't make him do anything. The jury started deliberating on November 30th. It would take them 12 days to reach a verdict, and that verdict would be guilty. On December 11th, 1990, Kevin was found guilty on every single count, including attempted murder, which is not a charge associated with the other four. His mother collapsed to the ground as the verdict was being read. Her heart simply could not take it. She would be removed from the courtroom on a stretcher, barely conscious. Kevin remembers feeling completely alone in this moment. His sister said that was the worst day of their lives. Supporters hurled insults and cries at the judge and the prosecution. They called Letterer a lying devil. They called her a whore, too, but they were proud of themselves. When it was over, they would later joke with the media about Letterer needing a vacation. The courtroom was so out of control that the jury had to be moved to another room just to finish reading the verdict. There, they read that Corey was found guilty on first-degree assault, sexual abuse, and rioting. Corey turned his attention to the prosecutor letterer and said, You bitch, she'll pay for this. Jesus is going to get you. Kevin and Corey embraced each other and cried. They were handcuffed and removed in tears. This was part two of a three-part series on the Exonerated Five. Part three will be dropping soon after this one, so be on the lookout. This episode was written and researched by Jordan Howard, narrated and edited by Andre White. If you're a fan of the Redacted History Podcast, consider leaving a like, a review, and a subscription. It goes a super long way. And if you're interested in supporting us further, go subscribe to the Patreon, where you'll get behind-the-scenes access, early and commercial-free episodes, and an ability to connect with me even closer. I appreciate all the support, as always.